Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and if you're a regular listener, you may have noticed that I have a tendency to re-interview guests that I particularly love. 30 minutes is never enough, and great writers keep writing, producing new meeting, and evolving. Speaking of evolving, today's repeat guest is the magnificent poet, novelist, children's book author, and Darwinian, Emily Ballou. Emily, welcome. Hello, Maggie. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> Lovely. Now, when Emily was last on the show, I interviewed, I interviewed her about her second novel, Ophelian. She's here to speak about her latest book, The Darwin Poems. And before we begin chatting, um, I'd love to hear you read a couple of poems from the book, Emily. Yep, that would be, that would be good. Um, I'll, I'll start with actually the first poem in the book. Uh, which is set, uh, the the book tra- travels through the whole life of Darwin and um, the first poem is set when he is eight and it's called The Donkey, August 1817. All along the roads, the beds of grass played dead that summer, the long blades bending under the weight of rain. Charles walked forever, legs unbound by fence or distance, a silver net of droplets over his hair. He wandered the river, casting, plonking, skipping stones, pulling worms to hook, his nails thin, black crescents. The air, the quivering air, carried him, its damp boo of scent that rose from the ground, that fell from the trees, honeysuckle, dirt, cow dung, field grass, wildflower, hay, leaf, he trod underfoot. He gulped down deep breaths as his father, the doctor, did, trying to swallow the words for what he felt. Beneath the pine trees, the insects lived and prayed. Still, he killed them. His pockets belched treasure to hoard back praise, black beetle carapaces, crumbling butterfly wings, pads of moss, quartz cord rocks he smashed open on fence posts, spooking the gray, sag-bellied, sad-eyed donkey who believed he was a sheep among sheep, dumbly tearing grass. He taking off across the fields. Some of the Irish servants believed donkeys genuflected on Christmas Day, but this one couldn't protect the flock from foxes, and every week in spring, a new dead sheep, a ram with a hole in its forehead, stigmata from another ram's horns, lay petrified on its side, bloated, fly-blown, fur black clotted with mud until the farmer dragged it away. His mother's body, too, had grown toxic, sprouted a fatal mushroom like a field after rain and all the world that had seemed to be made of glass, ecstatic, transparent, mysteriously molten, had broken. No amount of plunder, no collected cachet of wonders could extract the adoration 
he now needed to chase away the terrible secret growing daily within him, the thought that either his father was no doctor or God was a donkey. I'm, I'm going to stop you from reading another one just for a minute because um, <laughs> I want to talk about that one. That's, uh, you asked me if there was any that I wanted you to read, and um, I told you to pick one, but that is definitely my favorite. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, um, his mother, well, his mother died when he was very young. He was pretty much raised by his sisters and his father, and he had three older sisters. He also had an older brother, but um, it was his sisters who became his, his mother. And uh, there was lots of uh, letters and things that talk about how he collected, you know, everything. Obviously, he was always a collector, but he he kind of collected in a way to bring back and almost like an animal brings back um, a cat might bring back a, a dead rat to say look this is a gift for you and he would bring back all his collections to try to get the, the love from his sisters and his father it kind of sets up the, the structure of the book to a certain extent though did you sort of aim for little epiphanies um I think it's interesting. I, I think that that ended up being the style of, of the poetry, and in a way the poetry mimics, I guess, the kind of revelations that Darwin himself was uncovering in the sense that nature, beautiful, um, varied, uh, is full of this darkness as well, and that's really what the theory of natural selection is all about, uh, the the kind of hidden survival, the darkness, the, the the fighting it out between species, and I guess that did that did end up uh, coming into a lot of the po the poems in terms of its actual form. So a lot of poems will end with the kind of very banal sort of. I mean, some might be a revelation, but others are the natural world goes on. It is a hard place, kind of ending to the poems, I, I think. Mm. But we love little Darwin, don't we? Right from the start, I mean, I feel like you can really enter into his sense of loss with his mother. I mean, it you know, sort of brings out the maternal in you. Yes, yes, yes. No, he, and, and although, of course, he wouldn't have been thinking that, um, you know, God was dead, so to speak, at that age. Um, I think, again, that the purpose of doing something that is biographical but in verse allows a certain playfulness on my part uh, and a way of, of changing time. I mean, Darwin's all about time, and, and so I kind of condense time in, in this. And so there are some revelations of his that come later in life that I've, I've definitely put in different places. But the there are also then notes that can be referred to to kind of work out what what is really Darwin's and, and what is my own. Mm. I, I particularly like the way, um, although, you know, he, there are two deaths in addition to his mother and that, you know, effectively that sense that the father doesn't know everything and also, of course, God. But there's also some a kind of reverence that's subtly replacing that, isn't there, as he picks up these, you know, these bits and pieces as he's walking along. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, it, no, it's, it is the natural world that is 
that is Darwin's sort of spirituality and his obsession with looking and touching and understanding everything about it. And there's another poem in there called The Beach, which um, his sisters say to him, you know, um, keep, put your faith not in this world but the next. And he says, but look how it shines. Mm. Okay, let's have another one. Okay. Um, I think this is uh, this is from. We'll jump ahead uh, to the Beagle to the Beagle voyage. Darwin Darwin spent five years on the Beagle as as Captain Fitzroy's naturalist companion, and uh, his father didn't want him to go. He said it would be a waste of time, but uh, he did convince him in the end. So this is actually the third poem I ever wrote from from the collection. It was when I was investigating whether I could even write this voice. And it was set originally in the Blue Mountains, which Darwin visited in 1836 and where I used to live in Wentworth Falls. So this is called Handel, January 17th, 1836. In the shadow of an ancient cave, under the curved, fern roof of rock, after a snack of salted beef, Darwin dozed, though only briefly, in a heavy jacket of heat, while Handel's Messiah rose like a bubble from the deep and soared cliff high behind his eyes, an ascending thought he could not capture. He had the truest sense that there was so much more to man than breath. He dreamed his inner body stretched to accommodate the vast, reaches of mind stretched across the empty remembered wastes of Patagonia and its stark opposite, the hungry hands of the dark Tierra del Fugans, their yammer schoonering after the brass buttons on his coat, and how his own hand reached hungrily after the teeming secret life of this country for he too wanted so much more than he could speak. His throat was parched with sleep. A trickle of sweat creaked down his brow and cheek, and he could transfer it to his tongue like a lizard with one quick flickering hallelujah reach. Moments of adaptation were just breaths in the history of the world in the body of the world. Charles woke, stood, stretched, and broke wind. He glimpsed between hanging leaves how each step he took through his mind's thousand voices marked a moment when the liquid note of thought might hatch like an aria into something altogether new. While he'd watched the waterfall slide down the rocks in random but seemingly determined configurations, he pictured his branching diagram of life, still misty as a dream which he had only just begun to sketch in his mind, and it matched the first catch of bramble in the hand as he ambled along this creek, or a map of enemy movements the bird stalking the slick mocha lizard over the stone, 
or indeed the long, river-twisted gullet of man, and the possibility struck him, we may all be netted together. The chorus rose in him too, like one of Handel's harmonies, and he sang back its unadmitted prayer, may we all be netted together, for it was suddenly inconceivable to him that the universe could be just to the state of accumulating chances. Survival was an act of consciousness, and yet you could only do so much about it. How much happier one was in the sunlight, in the glare of this afternoon light, just to let life strike you open, to let it go, to flow creek-like in the company of a thousand competing creature voices towards the exhilarating, the inevitable falling. And again, we have that same um, now more mature sense, don't we, about the this juxtaposition really between life and death and that gut instinct wonder really that that drives forth the kind of creative act that became his work. Yes, yes, absolutely. And again, it's a it's a place where I slightly um, uh, uh, put you know some of the thoughts, the later thoughts from his work in, into a slightly earlier stage. Although his son believes that he pretty much after he'd been to the Galapagos, he he had the inklings that would become his theory of natural selection. And, and as soon as he got back to London, he, he started compiling his secret metaphysical notebooks, which said as much um, and questioned even the difference between man and animal and, you know, man is, an, is, is arrogant, you know, arrogant man. And we would we would do more um, metaphysics would do more to study baboon than Locke. So there there's there are definitely inklings, and that was in 1838. So it was all beginning quite early, although the work wasn't published for 20 years. Mm. Now some of the poems quote directly from Darwin's notebook. Uh, notebooks. Were you surprised at the poetic quality of the journal? This man who's, you know, the epitome of a, a hard-nosed scientist? Uh, no, I mean, in the sense that he had, he kept little sketch, little notebooks, um, his field notebooks, just were a lot of little sketches of, of, of things to then later elaborate on. So um, they almost have a haiku-like quality to them. And they will note also, you know, how he's feeling and and make a little notes of things to buy in the next town he visits. And, and so they're beautiful, they're beautiful little records in and of themselves could be, in an, an entire book could be made just from his own words. Um, there's a great that I sometimes sign in the beginning of the book. It's kind of, it's like an extra poem because I, I like to sign for Darwin as well. And, um, and this one is taken completely from his own his own words, and it says, "I should undoubtedly have thought it a microscopic crustacea if I had not myself exhaled it." It's quite um, quite humorous, isn't it? He's very humorous. He's very witty. His letters are very funny, and um, 
he was a very loving kind of um, humor, humorous and, and kind friend and a great correspondent. So there's so much material just in his own words. But I suppose I didn't want to just rely on his words. I wanted to try to um, encapsulate the whole life, you know, using only fragments and and then build from them to create a, a character. And I, I know you shared the Wentworth Falls walk, and, and certainly that that inspired you, Charles Darwin passed this way. Mm. But how did you make the, the step from, you know, this idea, oh, this, you know, these are the footsteps of Darwin, to actually deciding to do this full-scale project? Quite hard to remember. I know that when I saw first saw the plaque on the wall on the rock, um, I was so intrigued with this young man, this twenty six year old man who had taken the same steps as I had and and in which I did every day. And so I wrote three poems of which Handel that I just read was the third and the one that kind of crystallized for me that this was a voice I could work with. Um and at first I thought I might write uh just a whole series of poems of Darwin in the Blue Mountains or in Australia. And, but I started, and there's a, there's a few more that never made it into the book that were based around the, the creek and Wentworth Falls. And, and I got a bit tired of it. And I had been living in the Blue Mountains for six years and writing about that creek and walk in other ways myself. And I think I saw that there was a scope to to, um, his wife was so rich, there was so much material that I, I thought, no, actually, I'll, I'll go to Cambridge and, 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 and work in the Darwin archives and see what comes from that. And there was just so much I, I immediately knew I wanted to continue. And why I chose per, uh, verse, I'm not, I'm not sure. It, it just, I had begun writing in verse and I, I, I liked the idea of, of what you could get from from poetry that you might not get from nonfiction or even from from prose. A novel would require so much setting up of of you know the the nuance and detail of the social world and the time period. And I think there's something lost in that. There's a lot you can skip over a lot of things when you write in verse. Yes, I suppose it's a lot more condensed. Yeah, I like that because you can just hit on the important important moments, emotional, um, you know, states of emotional heightened um, feeling. And, yeah, you don't have to sort of spell everything out so, so perfectly, I think. And I had just spent five years writing a novel and, and it nearly killed me. And I think I just wanted to return to a form which had always been my first love and which I had stopped writing in um, for a long time on a regular basis because I had grown tired of writing about myself and it seemed that poetry was always was usually about the poet. And so this idea struck me that I could use Darwin as a kind of character and in doing so speak of all the things that, that trouble me, questions of, you know, existential questions and faith and what happens to us when we die and also my love of the natural world, but it, it, it could be about him, and yet I could be in there as well. Mm. And I, I like, and I, you know, I said in my review that um, in, in many ways it's quite a feminine perspective on Darwin, and by feminine I suppose I mean that the key 
points in his life, which you probably wouldn't get in a biography. You get the, the things that other people see, but the key points are those moments that probably wouldn't amount to anything on the outside, but yet are the transition points. Yeah, I mean, you are the first and only person to point this out, which is something I think is, is a very important aspect of this book, which it is a feminine Darwin, and there was something feminine about Darwin as well, but there was also so many women in his life. He was raised by three sisters. Um, his, he had this passionate little love affair before he went on the Beagle with, with Fanny Owen and, um, and married his cousin Emma. And he had grown up with these cousins. They were sisters. And, and so he was surrounded by women and his favorite daughter, Annie, who died when she was in. And so there was a lot of, a lot of women to work with. And I thought I wanted to, to bring that into the book and to look at some of the aspects of what life would be like, from, for instance, from the point of view of Emma giving birth to 10 children and, you know, the, the opportunities that were given to men that women didn't get. Hmm. Were there any periods in his life that, uh, or in the work as a whole that you struggled with a bit? Um, I think there was a few holes in the book at, at, at one point towards the end where I realized that I was missing a few things. And um, around the time of the publication of The Origin of, Spe- of, the Origin of Species, uh, I... I felt that, that that time when when uh, Wallace had sent him his letter saying, um, would you please read my essay? I have this idea. And basically it was the same idea that Darwin had been working on for 20 years but had not yet published. And it was a real crisis for him because he thought, well, I've been had. I haven't published this yet. I know I have priority because I've been working on for 20 years. What do I do? And at the same time, his son was dying of scarlet fever. So there was, it was a very, you know, that easily could have been a very rich and and huge section of the book. And yet, for some reason, um, I found it. There was almost too many competing emotions. Uh, and so I had to kind of, I wrote one poem, which is probably one I'm, I'm least happy with, um, to I guess fill in a gap that I felt was in the book, but. Um, it didn't, for some reason, didn't interest me as much as, as other parts of his life. Hmm. I think that's because it's a more, that's kind of the most famous incident. People, you know, know about this and talk about it. And um, the idea that his life work might have been eclipsed by someone else. But um, it's almost a kind of technical, technical period. You know, just how you actually turn 20 years of notes into a book and how do you get out into the public. There was a lot of stuff around editing and it just, maybe it felt too much right now in life. Now, the timing of the book is um, particularly good. Did you specifically um, intend for it to come out this year? Are you in the 200th anniversary? Well, I did only once I realized that it was. I had start, I had been long working on the book when I stupidly had failed to, to actually think about the fact that it would be the bicentenary. And then I was in a downhouse where Darwin and Emma lived in Kent. And the curator there was showing me, she took me into the back room and was showing me Emma's wedding ring and all sorts of wonderful little things they had there. 
And she said, oh, well, it's great timing that you've been writing this because, of course, the bicentenary. And I thought, this? <laughs> oh, I better, I better hurry because if I actually miss this, that will be extremely stupid of me. Um, to use a term that Darwin himself loved to say about himself, he was always saying, hey, hold on, extremely stupid. Um, and so I, I kind of had to, uh, I had mostly finished, but I, I definitely knew I had to get it done and find a publisher. So that, that was a little bit of a, a scary moment, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of scary moments, <laughs> um, I noticed on your blog that you've, you've had a bit of a dialogue with somebody about, um, I guess, about the whole notion of uh, evolution and so forth. And I understand your nervousness about the whole intelligent design issue. Um, and I'm still mm. not, not entirely sure about the correspondence either. Um, but did you have any issues in general about the almost odd mode of response that people still seem to have to Darwin and his work? Yeah, I mean, I haven't had really anything directly um, leveled at me, or I haven't really had a conversation other than this this man who, who wrote to me, who I was a bit unsure about, but it seems to be completely above board from my point of view. Um, uh, but I, I was very aware that uh, that Darwin still needs his bulldogs in the world. I mean, Huxley, they called his friend Huxley um, his bulldog because he would, because Darwin was so ill most of the time and he, he took a, a dislike to being out in public later in life. And so he had his friends who would, who would have the big debates um, around notions of creation and, and evolution. And Huxley was the one who would really take Darwin's side and, and champion his work. Um, but it's amazing to me that still 200 years later or 150 years after the origin of species, you still need, um, you still need a bulldog out there. there that, that there's a creation museum in America, that there are so many people who, who want to argue that Darwin is wrong. And, and even that, you know, it's intelligent design is a science, <laughs> you know, to the whole yes. school thing. Yes, to teach it, to not teach evolution or to teach evolution only alongside intelligent design. It's, it's quite frightening, I think. And so this is a man who still needs his champions in the world. And um, although I suppose a poetic portrait of Darwin isn't going to do anything to uh, change the minds of those who, who believe so strongly in the, on, uh, for the other side, I still like to keep Dar I think Darwin's name needs to be kept in, in, in the minds of people and he needs to be considered for the great work that he did, which is absolutely true. <laughs> I don't I don't you know, as I said in my dialogue with that um, man, I consider myself a postmodern thinker and therefore I, I don't like to use the word truth too lightly, but uh, this is one instance where I have no problems using the word truth. Yeah, so at least scientific process. Scientific process, yes. <laughs> Which is a little bit more straightforward. I suppose, but there would be those who would argue even against that. But um, I'm sure there would be. Now, um, tell me a little bit about um, the natural world and how, I guess, you inhabited it or, you know, sort of entered it as if you were Darwin to write the poems. Um, I've always... My, my father was a botanist, and I've, I've, I was raised in the woods. I mean, I didn't grow up living in the woods, but my father took us to the woods as, as often as we could 
collecting snakes and frogs and flowers, the, the typical childhood story of of mine is that um, the, our baby book, which was full of little images of, of us as children, was, was quickly replaced by images of flowers and plants that my father had, had taken photos of. So we kind of disappear from these books very early on. And so the, and I've always felt very connected with nature. Part of the reason I have I fell in love with Australia was because of its landscapes and living for six years in the Blue Mountains and walking every day in the bush um, has always made, uh, made me feel very close to nature. And when I was working on the poems, I guess I tried to read some of the stuff that Darwin would read and look at things like a piece of bark or something closely, um, magnifying glass. You know, try to see what is inside it when you enlarge it. Um, what are the parts, the names of things that that are poetic in themselves and the sort of stories of creatures that he might have come across. The, I was particularly struck by the octopus he, he had collected and the description it evaded his capture for a long time. It was very, it was a very playful, playful um, octopus, and it would stick itself to the rock pool and and you know dart away as soon as he got close. And then, as if he turned his back, it would squirt him. And yet, Darwin eventually captured it. And he has this description of how, when the octopus was on dry land, it tried to crawl away but couldn't lift its heavy head from the sand. And, I mean, that still kills me, I just think. And this is where Darwin and I are so different. I could never kill that octopus. Um, but just the, the kind of life spent in that world and collecting it and killing it and mounting it and all of those things, I really had to get my head around around that and and the the kind of uh, tools he would use or the the way he would preserve things. I, I was fascinated by all the descriptions in the Beagle notebooks of how to, you know, tie the birds with string, the wings of the birds with string and what what pillboxes used to keep little barnacles in and things like that. Now we're just about out of time. So um, can can we have a little clue of what, what's next, what you're working on, or what you'd like to work on in the near future? Um, I'm, I'm considering, I really enjoy this process, and I don't know if there's another person out there that I will connect with so strongly, but I am considering um, trying at this again. I, I really enjoy doing a, a biographical portrait in verse. And so that that is something I'm, I'm thinking about. But meanwhile, I am I've started another novel, and it's only very very early days. But um, I'm quite excited about it. So that will be the next thing I think, and then I will potter away some more poetry. That's wonderful. We'll look forward to it. Thank, thank you. Thanks so much thank for coming back on again. Thank you for having me. Take uh, care. Our next guest is K.J. Fraser who's coming on to talk about her novel, A Journey, A Reckoning, and a Miracle. So we'll see you then. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.